And get those dancing feet on because it's the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. In fact, we want you thinking very hard today because we have got a couple of physicists in the studio. A rather different take on physics, very different topics, but still physicists. Now, yesterday I had a rather bad experience on my bicycle which kind of brings me to mind that there's a couple of things that science does not really know yet. And one is, have either of you guys... Oh, I should introduce you first. <laughs> uh, Toby Hedy, g'day. Toby, you're a, a doing physics at the ANU and studying plants. Yes. <laughs> Tom Body, g'day. And uh, nuclear fusion. That's the one. Which is where I was heading with my complicated story just there because... There's some things that science doesn't really understand. How the placebo works and what is consciousness? How does consciousness work? And I had a direct experience of that yesterday <laughs> because riding home from the Canberra show, I came a cropper on my bicycle and knocked the stuffing out of myself and I don't know how I got home. And I was sort of conscious. I think it was just the hind brain that was operating and somehow I managed to get home. Have either of you ever been under anaesthetic or knocked out? Well, Rod, when you started that story, I thought you were going to ask us how the bicycle works, because <laughs> that's pretty interesting physics in itself. Yeah, one um, of the great mysteries. The nature of consciousness is a little bit more of an advanced topic, I think. <laughs> it is a bit off-topic, off but you see, the other thing that science hasn't quite figured out yet is nuclear fusion. And that, Tom, is going to be your topic, and we'll come to that at the second half of the show but first, let's have a look at plants. Now, uh, Toby, what is a physicist doing researching plants? Exactly. So I am a physicist, and it's funny because before I worked on plants, I was actually doing astronomy research. But there are some fundamental questions in the nature of um, plant science and biophysics that a physicist can actually contribute to. Uh, well, what, what exactly <laughs> yeah, is that? So... I'm looking at how plants protect themselves from diseases. So plant diseases are caused by something uh, called, called a pathogen. A pathogen is an organism that latches on to a plant cell and then starts to tunnel through the cell wall and wreak havoc and cause disease. And I'm thinking like a castle wall, you know, you've got the invaders outside, you've, you've got the people on the inside tipping buckets of oil of them, they're manning the buttresses and they're fending them off and the, while the invaders are trying to get inside. Now, what does a plant do? You've got, you've got these uh, bugs these or uh, pathogens, yeah. as you call them. Well, the castle is actually a good analogy for the cell wall. Uh, so plant cells have this very rigid structure around the outside, and that is to um, act as a gatekeeper, really, to keep out uh, bad things from the cell, things like a pathogen, and to let through good things like nutrients and, and water and, and to allow uh, the life to continue within the cell. So when a pathogen is trying to attack a plant cell, the cell wall or the castle actually has a few defences to keep it out and to keep the cell safe. Now the pathogen wants to get inside the castle wall because that's where the goodies are, that's where all the energy it wants to yeah. wants to get inside the cell. How, how hard is it? What, I mean, what does it do? 
like in the in the videos you see of the castle attacks, you know they're throwing they've got catapults and they're they're scaling up the walls and so on. Yeah. yeah, they're trying to knock a hole in the wall. Is is one way, and that's what you're saying. The pathogen. Yeah. So the the method of attack here is that the pathogen is essentially trying to poke through the cell ward. So maybe with a sword or something like that. So it's trying to penetrate the wall of the cell, and what it wants from inside is the nutrients and to continue to grow. Um, so this is where the physics actually comes into it. So the pathogen is trying to poke a hole, but the um, what's involved in this is just a pressure and a force on the cell, and force is something that's dealt with in physics. So it's physically pushing its way yes, into it's, the it's cell? Yes, it's a mechanical force. Push it, it's, really? um, it's like a, a buttress. Yeah. <laughs> is there a, a, a chemical attack as well? Is that the other part of There this? is. There are chemical components to this. Uh, those are not what I'm studying. Those are what the chemists and some of the biologists look at are this chemical interplay with disease. But what's interesting is that you can almost forget about the chemicals in a sense and just look at the physical penetration of the cell wall and you can actually mimic that with little needles that act the same way a pathogen would. And that's where my physics is being used. So you've got the, the needle and it's pushing on the cell wall and... Well, what does a needle look like? It must be very small. Yeah, so what I do is I, um, I take some plants, some little seedlings, I take them over to my physics lab, and there we have a slightly complicated machine called a nano-indenter. But what it essentially is is a way to poke something with very tiny needles. The needles would be about the tenth of the width of a human hair, so that's the scale we're sort of looking at, microns. And that's what I'm using to mimic this pathogen attack. That's a tiny, <laughs> tiny needle. Where do you get those? You don't just go down to Bunnings and say, oh, <laughs> no. I'll have a, a... And I'll just say the word again slowly, nano-indenter. So mm. you're pushing the cell. Uh, yeah, where do you get these? How do they make them, do you know? So I actually make them myself, these needles. So I use... I, I take a standard tungsten dissecting needle that I might use um, in a biology lab but I want to mill it down to be a certain shape. I want it to have a flat head. So I put it in something called a focused ion beam, which is it's kind of like an electron microscope, and it can individually fire like charged particles at the needle until it mills away at it so it's a certain shape. So you're shape. ablating the surface yes, of the ablating, needle? Yes, yeah. Really? With a focused beam of ions. And uh, I suppose you can't even see because it's it's such a tiny thing that well, how long would it be? Well like the it's so it's a tenth the width of a human hair and probably um, it's quite long because I need to actually be able to pick it up, but the part of it that makes contact with my cells I can't see. Oh, okay. Now your hand, right, now I'm, I'm, I'm holding my hand up, just looking to your radios because you can see my hand moving and I can't move it finally enough at the sort of scales that we're talking about here. It's extremely sensitive amount of movement and how do you control that? So that's that's where the nano indenter comes in. It's, it's a machine that is able to do manipulation on the nano scale and luckily I don't have to hold the needle myself and do this because I don't think I have a steady hand either. Um, but yeah, I, I put my needles um, into this machine and then I can use a computer to lower it down a certain amount of nanometers. So there's the a little servo motor thing yeah. and, and you, what, you, you press a button or a slider control on it? Yeah, all on the computer controlling it, yeah. Okay, okay. And then you, you're pushing the side of the cell. Mm. How hard are you pushing? 
it's it's not a very high pressure. It's it's higher than atmospheric. I'll give you the number: 0.1 megapascals. Um, it's essentially the same amount of force that a pathogen would use to tunnel into a cell. But but it's over a str- an extremely small area, right? Yeah. Right. And so you're trying to figure out how hard you have to push to to do what the the cell when it when it has this thing trying to break breach its wall what does the cell do then yeah so what i am looking at is if i push on the cell with a certain pressure what does the plant do and i'm actually looking at the plant during this process with a microscope and I can see proteins within the cell responding when they're under pressure. So the cell can sense its environment and it knows, oh, I'm being attacked, there's some pressure on the wall. So it actually rearranges itself, its internal components. They rush to the site of attack and start to strengthen the wall there. That's, that's, <laughs> uh, that's amazing. I, I can't quite get my head around stuff happening at, at such a, a fine scale. Yeah. And the... Is it something inherent in the protein structure in the cell that makes it do this? Or, um, I mean, in, in my castle analogy, it's very loose, of course. You know, you've got a, a commander there saying, everybody to the wall. But do, do we know how the cell knows, inverted commas, what to do? So it's quite amazing what plants know. You might know on a larger scale, you might have seen plants responding to their environment. So something even like um, light. If there's light on a certain side of a plant, it will grow towards that. Plants can also sense gravity. They grow their roots downwards, not upwards. Um, And even things like the Venus flytrap, that's a similar thing. It can sense pressure and it knows when to close and to eat the fly. What I'm looking at is similar kind of sensing, but on a very small scale, so on the single cell. There are things called mechanosensors, um, which I'm getting more into the chemistry of this, so it's kind of a, um, a chemical trigger um, that the cell knows it's being attacked. Um, so once you figured out how much pressure takes the cell to respond, what do we learn from that? Well, we learn what the plant's natural defences are, so how it would naturally protect itself and fight off the pathogen. Now that kind of information is useful because if we, the more we know about natural defences, the more we can use that to our advantage to hopefully make plants that are better able to protect themselves. So this is something like making crops that are more resilient to disease. So like all of this is related to plant diseases that you might recognise if you've seen blotches, wilting, sort of or like scabs. A, a rust or yeah, something a like rust. that. Yeah, a rust. So that's a plant disease, and if we can make plants better able to protect against those, it would be enormously beneficial. Uh, so this is really an example of pure research, isn't it? So I'm guessing the, the next step beyond this is probably not fair to ask you then, but what kind of things can we do to help uh, strengthen a, a plant's response? Do you have a sense of that? So it comes down to, yes, this is pure research. I'm just looking at how, how can we find out more about this process. The applications would be in sort of gene technology, or at least that's one of them. Things like if we know um, a certain plant is really good at a certain aspect of the response, looking at what genes make that 
sow and trying to maybe use those to make more resistant crops. There's various other aspects of it, even just like understanding which plants are at risk would be beneficial knowledge that comes from this. Oh, for, for maybe just plant breeding techniques and yeah, so just, on? Just, yeah, just the more knowledge you have about certain diseases in certain areas and, yeah. Uh, now, just go back to how you got into this research. You, did you say you're doing astronomy? Oh, yeah, that's where I started off. Yeah, that's what got that's, me into physics. That, that's quite that's quite a leap. What, what was it that got you into astronomy? I think, like, it was the idea you're questioning the mysteries of the universe, in a sense. That's why I studied physics, because I wanted to understand more about the world around me. And initially, I think it was um, watching documentaries on TV, National Geographic, things like that. There was always a lot of really cool space and astronomy shows. That's where I started, and eventually I've ended up in plants, but it's still the same concept of understanding the world around you. I, I love the way you, you put that, uh, Toby, uh, understanding the mysteries of the universe. And that really goes to the, the core of, of what science is. Would you agree with that, Tom? Yeah, certainly. I would say that, uh, that every scientist, the, the thing that brings them into science is this inherent curiosity. They just... Uh, I, every every scientist I've talked to is just uh, intrigued by what they see around them. They see something and they don't know how it works. I, th I think we do a bit of this when we're playing computer games, don't we? Because, you know, especially adventure-style games, and what's over the next hill? What's around the corner? What will happen if I pick up this vase and I insert the, the magic potion into it and I say something? It's just inherent sense of curiosity about what makes the world work and it's, it's it's a wonderful thing now was there a an inspiring person you've mentioned the the, the documentaries toby uh, on uh, science and so on was there a person or a, a time or place you can remember that that sparked your initial well, your curiosity i like I, I do think it was a lot of those shows um both on tv and on youtube as well i'm really into like uh, that side of things as well. Maybe someone like Brian Cox, who was um, more on the astronomy side. Yeah, I, yeah, just people that were questioning, like what you say, people that could show that natural curiosity. I really loved that. It's it's, it's a real sense of of fun. Now, what was it that got you the transition from uh, astronomy to plants? How did you make that leap? Well, really, after working in astronomy for a little bit, I found out that whilst you're dealing with these really awesome concepts, you're looking at pictures of galaxies that no one's ever seen before, it's really cool. Um, what the job actually is, is a lot of computer science and coding. So it really is more of an office job. But what I'm doing now is experimental and I'm in the lab and I'm actually hands-on with science and I wanted something more like that, uh, more of a involved and experimental project. What would you say the biggest thing you've learned so far? Oh, how far into it, by the way? So you're, you're doing your PhD research. How mm. far into that? Research? I'm only about six months in so far, and the start of your PhD is a lot about reading and learning about the topic so that you can go on to sort of get more results on the later side. But what I've looked at specifically so far are things like what kind of pressures can these cells respond to, like what is enough pressure to trigger it? Well, this uh, paper, uh, of course, comes from plant cells and it has a very particular structure. We might uh, cut to a quick music break here, some uh, classic uh, carpenters, if I've got the right CD. <laughs> it's always a bit of a, uh, a mystery here if I press the right button. And our guest today on Fuzzy Logic, uh, 
Tom Boddy and Toby Hendy, both doing physics here on Fuzzy Logic. Tom, you're a fusion physicist, and we're going to get to you later, but uh, we're still on the subject of plants and plant cells. Now, I'm holding in my hand a piece of paper, which indeed comes from uh, a plant, and it's no accident, I think, that's quite a durable product. And it says something about the cell wall, doesn't it, uh, Toby? Yeah, well, there's all different kinds of plants. Some of them are stronger and weaker than others. Um, but yeah, cells have very strong cell walls and they're very good at protecting themselves. I guess that's one reason why they're useful in materials, not just paper, but other bio-inspired materials often look towards how plants have done it so well. Uh, timber and so on. Now we've got on uh, one of our microphones here, uh, Andrew, who's joined us for the show. G'day, Andrew. Uh, how's it going? Uh, Andrew, I think you had a question you wanted to ask. Yeah, so um, I, I guess with, with the cell wall, is there, is there like a thres threshold as to, is there a defined like pressure that a cell wall can handle when it starts to give this immune response, I guess, that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, so there is certainly a triggering point. Finding it exactly for um, my plants is sort of the area that I'm looking at at the moment, but even in things like what I mentioned, the Venus flytrap, that might be a good example. So the Venus flytrap, senses that a uh, fly is landed on it but it doesn't want to close if just a speck of dust has landed on it or something lighter than a fly so it essentially needs to count how much pressure is being applied before it closes otherwise it's going to waste its energy so plants are very good at not only sensing the environment but sensing I guess how much pressure there is or how much force and things like that they're very clever <laughs> and and uh, Tom, I think you had a question you wanted to ask as well. Yeah, certainly. Um, so hearing the analogy about the defenders in the castle, um, it always when you've got this, you've got the commander, as you said, Rudd, who commands everyone to go and take up defense at the point that they're being attacked. But when you're talking about a cell, the, this is a micro scale, and at least as far as I'm aware, there's not a, a, a brain inside your cell. How does a, a cell sort of self-organized defenses defend itself against yeah. uh, an invader. So what I think is interesting about biology from a physics perspective is that a lot of things are just controlled by the flow of ions from one place to another. That's essentially how a lot of the chemical signaling works and that gives this appearance of a brain and, and the way things work. So there is a chemical signal that's triggered at the level of the cell wall but then that sort of um, has a knock-on effect. Different ions and chemicals are released across the cell, and eventually these proteins, which come to strengthen the site of attack, they come from the other side of the cell even. So there is a bit of a communication, but it's not sort of a magical or a, no, a, a, consciousness. a consciousness. It's just really quite cool. It's just the flow of ions. So it is, it is a kind of communication, but it's just not a, a digital wise. It's not a Twitter. <laughs> oh, by the way, Toby, we are on Twitter at the moment. You're monitoring your Twitter handle. Yeah. Which is? So it's just my name. Uh, I'll spell it out. T-O-B-Y-H-E-N-D-Y. So you can post any questions there if you're yeah, listening. Yeah, and we'll be watching that during the show if you want to shoot in your own questions or your own comments. 
Oh, and uh, I think also I've heard of a, a very successful YouTube channel that you might be uh, in control of. Is there a, is that? Yeah, true? so I, I make videos as well. We've done a bit of filming here today at Fuzzy Logic, so um, there'll be a video up soon of, of what it's like behind the scenes on the radio. Um, you can you can get to that from my Twitter or look it up, Tibbies, T-I-B-E-E-S. Oh, there you go. And, of course, uh, I, I first uh, recognised you, Toby, because you had done one on a Klein bot. Snitted uh, hat, which, which is rather quirky. I do, I do like that. What prompted you to do that? Oh yes, I, I got recognised by you from that video. It was, it's funny. I don't know how to knit anything other than a Klein bottle hat. Like people ask me, <laughs> people ask me, like, oh, can I teach them how to knit? Like something that's really basic, and I'm like. I don't know how to knit. I only I approached it like a physicist. I wanted to knit a Klein bottle, and that's what I learned how to do. I don't have any other skills in knitting. All right, now there's there's a slim chance that one of our listeners won't know what a Klein bottle is. You want to re- explain uh, so it's, that? It's a bit of a mathematical idea. It's a shape that only has one side. Um, but three dimensions. It's a three-dimensional representation of this shape, which is like a theoretical shape. Um, well, it's like a, a Mobius strip, isn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. A Mobius strip is like if you took a piece of paper, twisted it, and then stuck the sides back together. Like it's a shape with one side that just sort of continuously rolls around. In fact, if you take two Mobius strips and stick them together, you can make a Klein bottle. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> if you sew or zip two... Mobius ships together, it actually turns out to be a Klein bottle. So you're, you're, you're visualising space. Let's just go back to the uh, the plant pathogens, right? So uh, presumably the pathogens have, can, can push hard enough on the side of the cell because they, they do invade the cells. Do you, do you, are you pushing the with your little tiny probe thing hard enough to actually puncture the side of the cell? No, so I'm actually trying not to puncture my cells because... That would sort of cause um, a lot of the material to sort of spill out, and I wouldn't see the or response. Or just rupture. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm more interested in in the cell's response before it's punctured, what it's trying to do to to prevent the pathogen. And I suppose implicitly, you're discovering uh, how hard a pathogen can push as well. And um, it's not directly your line of research, but they must have some mechanism to apply that pressure to the side of the cell. Yes, um, they, they, pathogens themselves are actually quite fierce. They can apply quite a lot of pressure. And in fact, another study had looked at how much pressure they can apply, and they found that a, just a pathogen, a little organism, can pierce through a sheet of Kevlar. Um, really? Yeah, so it's quite a lot of pressure. And the way that what the pressure comes from is osmosis. So that is the flow of water into an organism to balance concentrations of salts. So water flows into the pathogen, it starts to swell up. When it's swelled to a certain level, it starts to pierce downwards because that pressure's got nowhere else to go. Now, you, you may have asked a question that has been on my mind for a long time. You know you're walking along the, the footpath and you can see the, the, the tarred surface and there's a mushroom or a toadstool, a toadstool has pushed its way up through and it's actually forced apart the, the asphalt to get to the surface. That's a lot of pressure out of what looks like a very soft organism. Is that the same kind of mechanism? It, it should be a similar thing. Osmosis controls a lot of biological um, occurrences so it's just water would flow into the toadstool um, 
and then that would allow it to sort of grow upwards and gain pressure. So it's almost like a, a powerful water gun almost, <laughs> so it's taking in all of that water and then pointing it at one direction and it keeps putting the pressure on so eventually the thing has to move. Yeah, essentially, yeah. It's, it's using the pressure of water to manipulate. So it's probably more like a pneumatic pump, you know, <laughs> a hydraulic... Hydraulics, yeah. Hydraulic yeah. pump. Water gun probably undersold it a little bit. <laughs> Although I think uh, in the case of the toadstool, as I understand it, it's not a the the pressure is is high, but is it also partly the fact that it's applied over a long period of time? If you continue applying a pressure, then uh, you slowly sort of force your way through. If you have that sustained pressure. Yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly about the toadstool, but um, yeah, it's it's probably over quite a big area as well. Uh, yes, we're all dancing around the studio here <laughs> on Fuzzy Logic and we are talking physics of getting down and dirty with some hardcore physics and our guest today, Toby Handy. We've been talking about plants and invading plant cells and fusion here with Tom Body. G'day, Tom. Now, you have got yourself a position, a PhD position at the Max Planck Institute. Now, that is pretty cool. That yeah, is pretty it's cool. Uh, fantastic. I got, a, I got the news about two weeks ago um, that I was um, there looking for someone with my area of speciality and uh, flying me off to Germany to start a three-year position at uh, in Munich at a, one of the leading labs in the world. So it's a very exciting that, uh, yeah, that's, change. That's, that's pretty special. Now your field is nuclear fusion. And uh, now I think our listener is going to know what the difference between fission and fusion is, but marriage versus divorce, <laughs> what, what's your description of it? Uh, in a nutshell, that's, uh, that's pretty close to it. So in fission, uh, which is what we use in pretty much every nuclear reactor that we've got running today, um, that's when you take a very, very large nucleus, a very heavy atom, and you split it apart and it releases energy. Um, but in fusion, we're doing very much the opposite process. We're taking a very, very light atom, smashing them together, and then it releases energy. Uh, basically, there's a, a dividing line being lead. And if you're heavier, then you can get energy by breaking apart. And if it's lighter, you get energy by putting them together. Uh, so uh, fusion, very small, very simple, not much to go wrong. In inverted commas uses non-scientific language here. But uh, before the show, we were casting about for an analogy of uh, uh, fission, and it was like two office blocks flying together, and there's bits and pieces all over the place. It's a real <laughs> mess. And uh, does that kind of halfway go to explaining? Because the, the process of fusion is, inverted commas, and I'm doing the finger-waggling thing here, is fairly clean, right? And fission... Uh, it's dirty. All this crap flies off. Yeah, certainly that's a um, that's a way of looking at it. Uh, when you split apart a heavy nucleus like uranium, you get the products that come out are, are still quite large and still can be radioactive. When you smash together two hydrogen atoms, which is what we do in fusion, what comes out is helium, which is exactly the same thing that you fill up your balloons with. Um, so in that sense, it is it is cleaner than than fission. Now your research, what uh, what is it going to be? So my my very specialised area of research is looking at um, what I what we call edge physics. It's in in a fusion reactor. Essentially, what we're doing is we're taking 
the core of a star, the heart of a star, and we're putting it in a bottle on Earth. And as soon as I tell anyone this, uh, a lot of physicists are like, oh, that's really cool, and we, we chat about it for a while. But I tell anyone who's not a physicist, and they're like, what happens to the bottle? Obviously it melts. Um, turns out that that actually is what happens. It, it has a, a huge amount of heat being applied to it, and my job is to stop that, that bottle. And it, it is a really prodigious amount of heat, isn't it? It's huge. Yeah, the uh, the amount of heat hitting uh, every part of the reactor where we're directing the heat to, uh, that amount of heat is like having a blowtorch, or actually maybe several blowtorches worth of energy being applied to every part of that react uh, of the reactor. Well, you think of the amount of heat that comes off a, a nuclear a weapon. Uh, now you've got the blast effect there of a nuclear weapon, but uh, in, in a reactor you have a similar scale of energy, don't you? Yeah, you mean, it's, it is truly stupendous the amount of energy that's going to come out of fusion. Yeah, you have a prodigious amount of heat coming out. You uh, the the reactors that we're looking at these days are typically on the uh, the gigawatt scale, um, megawatts to gigawatts, and that's several. That's a coal power station or several coal power stations worth of output. Yes, because a uh, like a, a large uh, uh, coal-fired plant would be a, a gigawatt or something of that sort of order. Yeah. And like I've just got solar panels. I bought sort of solar panels for my roof, and it's six kilowatts, and that's like a, a tiny, tiny fraction of what. Now, fusion, we've been talking about fusion or hearing about fusion for a long time. It's always 20 years. No matter when you ask, it's 20 years or 30 years. Uh, what's your sense of that now? Um, well, the, it's a, definitely been said for a very long time, and I, I hate to say it, but the, uh, the reactor that everyone in mainstream research is working towards, uh, it's called the ITER reactor, and it's being built in France, it's being finished in 2035 for mainstream operation, which, if I calculate that, is that 17 <laughs> years away? So maybe slightly less than 20 years. Um, on the other hand, though, there's been, um, I'd, I'd like to call it the SpaceX movement of fusion. Uh, SpaceX has come along and taken a very conventional industry, uh, rocket launches, and they've managed to sort of to innovate on that. And this has inspired a whole tech industry and there are companies that are coming along, coming to fusion, which has been this, this long, difficult problem. And they're trying to apply the sort of SpaceX philosophy, the rapid innovation. And with those in sight, it is possible that we could see a, a more rapid trend. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's just, just take us through the very basic of a design. What, what does a reactor look like? So there's um, there's two principal designs of reactor, and then a third which a lot of these startups are looking at. The one that I study is called a tokamak. Uh, it's a Russian acronym, but basically it's a donut. Um, due to uh, a uh, one of Maxwell's equations for electromagnetics, you can't um, make a, a perfect magnetic bottle with a sphere. You need to make a donut out of that, which just it looks really cool as well, so uh, that, that definitely helps. Um, but essentially you have a very hot gas in the center, or a plasma actually is what we call it, when it's hot enough the, uh, the electrons fall off the, the nuclei, and you can confine them with these very strong magnetic fields. Another one is that we fire enormous lasers, the most powerful laser in the world actually, and we make the fusion reaction go so fast that 
the the star can't uh, escape from confinement by the time that it's actually done a significant amount of fusion. The third type is sort of a piston-driven system, which is kind of like a, a hybrid of the two. It uses magnets and also compression. Um, and so uh, companies like General Fusion are looking at this, uh, this compression-driven system. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I could just feel Toby itching to knit you a bottle, uh, yeah. a, 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 a tokamak reactor. Um, so with giant lasers or giant magnets, I'm assuming a lot of energy has to go into the system to run and maybe heat up this, this gas into a plasma so much. Has any fusion reactor had a net positive where the amount of energy you put in has been exceeded by, by the amount of energy we get out? So the, the short answer is no, and the slightly longer answer is still no. Um, <laughs> But the very long answer is we've got to about 70% with the magnetic bottle addition, and uh, NIF, the world's largest la laser facility, uh, recently announced that the amount of energy going into the pellet that they were compressing uh, was less than the energy that came out. So this was quite a, a big step for inertial confinement fusion. Um, but on the other hand, the amount of energy going into getting the lasers working rather than just lasers getting into the pellet. So uh, is, is an analogy here is to start a campfire. I've got to apply energy to get the thing, the, the process going, and then once it's going, it's it's self-sustaining. Is that uh, kind of what Andrew is uh, question is? heading towards yeah it's like starting a campfire with wet wood and uh you have a box of matches and you have a, a campfire with some very very wet wood and you strike a match and you put it under the the wet wood and it doesn't catch and you strike another match and you put it under the the campfire and it doesn't catch and you keep on doing this until you've used up so many matches that eventually you do start your fire with wet wood and it, it starts burning quite well but it would have been much more efficient just to take one of those matches out of the box set the box on fire and then burn the box and you would have got a, a more energy coming out of what your your initiator is which, which is of course is, is, a, is a great analogy but it's a gross simplification <laughs> uh, because once you've lit the fire then as you say you have to contain it somehow and that's where your research is going to be right yes yeah looking at a at containing the energy containing the essentially the well containing the fire uh holding that in place so the uh, the energy has a tendency to leak out. Um, it's just a it's the world's sorry the the solar system's largest temperature gradient, possibly one of the largest temperature gradients in the known universe. We have a, a stellar core, and then we have um, liquid helium cooled magnets, sort of meters away from each other, and the the heat just sort of rushes out, and we need to keep that fire going at a at a rate. Um, I'm just digesting what you said there. A liquid nitrogen cooled liquid helium. A liquid sorry, liquid helium minus two hundred and seventy three degrees. And only what like a, how how physically large are these reactors? Are they I think uh, the diameter of one of the tubes around this tokamak thing is what two meters or something um, like that. Two three meters, two, something three on meters. that order. Um, they're they're looking at sort of that scale, um, and then so that's that's from the the center where your extremely hot gas is to the edge, the the physical um, wall of the reactor is about two or three meters. So you have to have the hottest thing that we can probably create in the solar system in the middle of the room on the other outside, minus 273 is nearly absolute zero. Very so close to the being coldest absolute. thing we can have in the universe just a meter away from it, and we keep it all together somehow. Yeah, it certainly uh, boggles the mind, and it definitely boggles my mind when I when I first learn about this. Um, 
and certainly like it introduces a, a an enormous number of problems but we've been well as as we've said there's for 50 years we've been working on it and had it 20 years in in the future um a lot of a lot of the issues have been ironed out but there are still some that it's a very active well area okay research. now your research is what so you how you you're trying to find a way to tackle this problem and andrew puts it beautifully the the hottest known thing right next to the coldest known thing so my particular bit of research is looking at um you could almost think of the 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 magnets uh, it's it's kind of like a car crash um, you've got a a violently um, a huge amount of momentum but actually in this case it's heat that's rushing forward and trying to get towards the magnets and then you've got this airbag that comes up in the way I I work on developing this airbag that protects and absorbs that heat which would be momentum in a in a car crash um, that we we try and uh, and have this sort of buffer zone. So you be injecting a gas around the wall of the the reactor. Is that roughly Ye what it is? Yes, yes, that's correct. So we we try and make this this gas buffer layer that actually it's it's sort of similar to what uh, Toby was saying before, like this this self organization that like spontaneously develops. So we we inject a little bit of gas, but not enough to to really completely absorb all of the energy, but it creates this uh, this self-structure. Uh, so I find this interesting. So Tom and I actually went through the same physics program at ANU for our honours, so we actually had the same background knowledge, but have gone into two very different seeming fields. But we're both looking at how a system responds and interacts with its environment and organises in response to that. Yeah, that's correct. It's sort of the uh, the same background knowledge, which is one of the things that's so amazing about physics. You take the same background knowledge and you can apply it to anything from a fusion reactor to a plant cell. And, and of course, there's the the fundamental way that we approach science, which is the rigorous thinking, the, the the chopping down the bad ideas, but also the creativity. Now we were at we met at an event last week, uh, Sci Art, which is the art and science coming together, and they're both creative things. So th there is, I think, in both of your fields, a, a strong sense of where you, you're using. Your imagination. Do you do you lie in bed at night thinking, oh, visualizing something or other going on? I'm embarrassed to say the answer is yes. Yeah, definitely. I <laughs> normally okay. keep a uh, pen and paper beside my bed because a lot of the uh, I feel I should have one by the shower as well. That's where some of the the best ideas have come up. It's uh, yeah, yeah. what about you? I, I like looking um, around the world and seeing links, and maybe it's a link back to my research or just a link to somewhere else. Like people mention things about pressure and I, I'm like, hmm, actually, maybe that is relevant. And so it's, I think science is about trying to find those links between ideas that seem different but are actually connected. Uh, I, I, do, I do like that. And if I were to have a, a three-letter slogan, I would, it would be everything is connected. Actually, was that four? <laughs> Everything is connected. And, and I'm just thinking, like I wrote an article for the photography magazine and I was walking across my backyard and there was the uh, ox heart flower, right? And also I like the yabbies, the, the little Cherex destructor yabbies that you find in the, in the dams where the carp haven't uh, destroyed. But anyway, 
uh, and I sort of put the two ideas together. So I did this series of photos of the yabby clutching an ox heart flower, <laughs> <laughs> and it's putting. Yeah. So back to the the fusion. Mm -hmm. You you're dampening the energy, uh, but you don't want to dampen it too much so that you stop the reaction. So your wet wood analogy before, right? Too much water, you put the thing out. You don't want to put the fire out. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly a good point. So. Um we we could put in an, an enormous amount of this this airbag. We could put a huge airbag around this entire um, entire supercooled magnet. But if we do that, then we do risk extinguishing the fire. And the only real way to figure out how to do this in in the right balance, so that we've got the right amount of protection, but not so much that it extinguishes the fire, is through either experiment or computational experiment, which is what my speciality is. It's making um, simulations that typically have to be run on supercomputers to try and work out what happens when we make so this So when you start your PhD research proper in uh, two and a half weeks' time, yes. <laughs> uh, and, and you've adjusted to European time and all that kind of stuff, what will you be doing? Are you, you Obviously, like uh, Toby, you'll be reading prodigiously everything you can get your, your fingers on. Uh, but then what will be the substance of you? This, apart from this gas, right? How will you approach that problem? Um, so the uh, what I'll be working on is is a, a um, simulation code, essentially a software package that um, manages to try and recreate the, the conditions inside a real reactor. Um, and it comes from sort of uh, like Toby was saying before, like very simple things. So in my case, it's um, it's physics equations that you could write on the back of a of a coffee napkin, you like these. The the laws behind it are very simple, and we sometimes do more complicated equations to try and sort of simplify the thing that has to go into the computer. Are, are these equations showing how the gas moves around inside the container? Yes, that's correct, and how the uh, elect electric fields and magnetic fields self-generate inside there. Is is it a little bit like the equation that a car engineer would be doing as to how the the volatile gases flow around inside an engine, a cylinder? Because you want to eject the uh, oxygen and the petrol fumes of uh, fumes, huh? the, the the fuel yep. into the cylinder, and model what happens. Yeah, the, um, some of the the codes that uh, we use are modifications on exactly what you're talking about. Um, I've got the terrifying name of computational fluid dynamics, um, but essentially these codes we we take comp computational fluid dynamic codes. And then we add in a bit of a complication, so then we get the uh, even more great name of computational magnetohydrodynamics, <laughs> uh, which, yeah, even even for me, it's a tongue twister. Um, but these these codes do come a lot from a there's a sort of a, a sharing of ideas between different fields. Um, and okay, so now you once the come the happy day, we're going to get this reactor going. Do we have any idea how we're going to harvest the energy out of it? So it depends on what fuel you're using. So the the most common reaction used for um, for fusion studies currently is deuterium and tritium. They're two isotopes of hydrogen, uh, and that will release neutrons. And those neutrons can be captured just to turn into heat. And then you run the same uh, generator that we've been running for hundreds of years to turn a turbine um, and generate energy like that. Um, but there are other more esoteric uh, fuels that you can use to 
Um, rather than generating neutrons, you can generate charged products. And then that is another research area where you can directly convert um, an ion flow into electricity. Um, but that's a very sort of theoretical wow. uh, approach. And it, it also uses um, quite interesting fuels. One of them is a, a deuterium-helium-3 reaction. And deuterium is fine. We find it in uh, most seawater. There's, uh, there's billions of years' worth of reserves on Earth. But helium-3, we'd actually have to go to the moon to find any significant reserve of helium-3. Um, there's been ideas floated before to establish a moon base for the express purpose of finding a reserve of helium-3 to, to power fusion reactors. That would be cool, and we could do an outside broadcast from the moon's <laughs> surface. That, that would be uh, amazing. Some of the best mining engineers would love to go to the moon, I guess, as well. I think it's uh, I, there. There are a lot of um, of things that come to mind when you talk about establishing moon bases. The uh, you know space launch ports and the, uh, we, the we, mining colonies. That's another whole program here on definitely. fuzzy logic. And of course, we are talking to Toby Hendy, who's been just telling us about uh, plant pathogens and how they invade cells, and Tom Body and nuclear fusion. Now, Tom, if we do manage to get it, come the happy day, and we've got this beautiful thing reactor going, mm -hmm. how much energy do you, are we going to get out of this thing? So the reactors that we're developing, the mainstream sort of university-funded technique, they will probably produce something on the order of a gigawatt. So essentially, you could pick up a coal power station, take it out, and put a fusion reactor in its place. Um, but there's some other really interesting ideas to develop much smaller reactors um, using sort of new and emerging technologies. And these techniques, uh, sorry, these reactors, you could slot into much smaller communities and it wouldn't require so much distribution. Um, so it would be useful for uh, remote, more remote communities or smaller cities. Uh, now, le left field question, Tom. Do you remember the cold fusion story? I... Which one? I think there's been a few over yeah, the, uh, the years. Ponds and Fleischmann or something. Have I got the name right? Anyway, <laughs> these guys thought that they had replicated, uh, managed to produce cold fusion inside a beaker or something like that. Oh, yes. No, I think I vaguely heard of this. Is, is that sort of vaguely likely at all? Uh, it's certainly not what I study. Um, it's we We sort of take as, uh, the simplest approach that we possibly can and then just make it so we it's an engineering challenge now for the cold fusion approach um i think it was looking at some quantum mechanical technique of reducing the the coulomb barrier um or something along those lines i can't say i studied it greatly yeah, um, it was it was a spectacular uh... it never was replicated um but there is a there's a famous quote which was that if you ask a scientist if something's possible and they say yes then they're probably right if you ask a scientist if they say uh, that it's impossible then there's a good chance that they'll be wrong so i definitely wouldn't i wouldn't be investing in cold fusion anytime soon but it's hard to hard to rule out well, anything it, in science. It, it does kind of show for all of us, though, doesn't it, how the, the process of science can lead us astray. You, you come up with an idea and think, wouldn't it be really cool if we could do fusion in a beaker? Oh, it would be amazing. But it would change uh, the world. The, so. the rewards would be enormous. Now, a quick question for both of you, because we're running to the end of our time now. What would you say to your earlier selves, and maybe to our listener out there who's feeling inspired to go into science, what would you say to yourselves? I'll start with you, Toby. 
I think just continue pursuing things that interest you and that you don't need to map out where you're going to be in, say, five years. Like, I didn't expect to be doing a PhD on plants, but that's where I've ended up just by pursuing directions I thought were interesting along the way. And Tom? I would say that... Um that any connection that you think is useful, uh, make sure that you foster those connections. Science is a, um, it's a very cutting edge field, but it's in some sense it's like a, a tribal village. You, you sort of, you make friends with supervisors, with peers, and there's a, a, a lot of the ways that you, uh, you progress in, in research. Well, what I can feel from both of you is the great sense of excitement and, and the potential and the enthusiasm that you bring to what you do, that sense of curiosity and oh wow look at that isn't that just amazing and that's really a large part of what science is wouldn't you agree Andrew? I would definitely agree and, and for, if you're lucky enough to be a kid out there listening and, and you're thinking how do I get into science or think like a scientist there's, there's three things you should just remember to do. Question, ask a question, any question that you see about the world around you, have a guess, that's all scientists do, we, we think about it then we have a guess and then we do the most important thing, test it out. And, we learn about the different testing processes today, um, but you can always test things. I think that's a really good point, Andrew, because the path to a Nobel Prize starts with the question. It's always the question. And we've been asking lots of questions here today on Fuzzy Logic. And uh, today's Ask Fuzzy in the Canberra Times is about the periodic table. And it's closer to your field there, Tom. But uh, we have 118 elements so far defined and another four, I think it was, were named only in uh, 2016, and there's another couple on the way. So uh, that's... <laughs> well, maybe, no, you won't be. You won't be... Oh, you're going to be at CERN, aren't you? Or near, oh, close, close near to CERN. CERN. Yeah. Um, should we have a gander on, on what these new elements mean? Or I guess... Uh, I think it's closer to Tom's field. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think about it, David. <laughs> um, yeah, certainly. Like the uh, the synthesis of new elements is a isn't. It's just one of those those blue sky um, thinking problems. It's just a. It's driven by curiosity, and we can't say where it's going to. You're take not going us. to go down to the, um, the 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 chemist and buy yourself a bottle of Laurentium or, <laughs> or oh, I can't remember the name of the other. Uh, elements that they've... Uh, a lot of these ones that they're making that are new don't stick around for very long, so they're, they've got very short sort of lifespans. Life and you probably need a really big device, maybe like the CERN reactor or something, to produce one of these things? Yeah, certainly. It's a, it's a very high um, energy collision to try and make new elements. This sort of There's, uh, oh, by the way, uh, uh, I'm, I'm angling for the discovery of a, of a, a fundamental particle called the FUN boson. <laughs> the FUN boson is the fundamental force of fun in the universe, and you know, every uh, in physics is the, uh, this thing called symmetry. The antiparticle is called the bean counter. <laughs> well, we'll certainly ring you up if we find it. So. Well, uh, uh, we know it exists, and the funny thing that happens is if the two come together, the uh, the fun boson disappears, and the bean counter boson goes on forever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with that profound thought, thank you very much for your time today, Tom thank and Toby. Thank you.